One of the things that we would always tell the students, and I was told as a student as well, you know, be confident. And I find it extremely difficult, you know, for some students to include me, to be confident when I haven't proven to myself yet that I can do something. That was very challenging. And it really wasn't until I was several several years into my career and flying the A-10 that I kind of learned the lesson in confidence and how to build it. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast. My name is Ron Duran Jr. and I will be your blacksmith as we explore the world of adversity and doing hard things. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Tammy Barlett retired from the Air Force in 2018 after 20 years of dedicated service. During her last assignment, she was an instructor pilot in the T-38 Talon. She has more than 3,000 total flight hours and over 1,500 hours of combat support time in both Iraq and Afghanistan. She is now a motivational speaker with years of experience teaching and empowering others to be their best. Today we discuss so many fun topics. I know you're going to love Tammy's thoughts on building confidence, trusting your brain, women in leadership, and how to perform better under pressure. Enjoy the show. Okay, everybody, welcome to The Forge. I have to be honest, selfishly, today we're going to talk about mental performance for flying. And as I think most people that listen to this podcast know, I'm a pilot. And of course, our guest today is also a pilot. Not only that, but she teaches people how to fly and the mental performance of it. So again, selfishly, I want to get some free coaching today. So, But I hope that everybody can say, wow. You know, number one, I hope it's it's interesting to you, even if you're not a pilot. But number two, I think that the the principles of mental performance, in my humble opinion, are pretty universal. And so try to pick out those things that that Tammy and I talk about today that you can apply to your life. And and we'll try to emphasize those as much as we can. But I'm gonna I'm gonna have a little fun today. So with that being said, Tammy, welcome to the forge. We're happy to have you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So I'm going to jump right into, you know, I look on your your LinkedIn profile and you say you're a mental coach for aviators. I have to say I've never seen that title. I love it. Obviously, myself being in, you know, I'm going to use the word aviator, even though maybe I haven't earned it. But what is what does that entail? What is who's your ideal client? Yeah, well. I like to think about how professional athletes are, they all have mental performance coaches because the mental side of the game is extremely important. And I have discovered that I feel exactly the same way about flying, that the mental performance side of aviation is extremely important. Think about the aspect of flying. You can't just pull over on a cloud when things get tough. You have to push through it. And the more you're prepared to push through the challenges, the more prepared you'll be to fly. Ultimately, you will be safer flying, more confident, more prepared for each flight, more prepared for every check ride. And this came about simply because I realized developing my keynote on perseverance that a lot of what I had been doing was mental performance related. And that when I was teaching and pilot training for the, I think it was a total of 11 years, and I taught in other aircraft too, but pilot training specifically 
I focused a lot. I was doing mental performance coaching and I didn't even realize it until I look back on it. So I thought that was very interesting. I thought, you know what, I need to expand this. So ideally, my my ideal client is any aviator. When you say aviator, I say, you know, student pilot, upgrading pilot, instructor pilot, anyone who just wants to be better in the cockpit, more confident, more safe. That's my ideal client. Yeah, I'm smiling because I think this is great. I've always thought about, you know, there was a time when I thought about becoming a flight instructor. And I said, if I'm going to be a flight instructor, I'm going to teach leadership right along with learning how to fly an airplane. I never did go down that path, but I, I'd be great if, quite honestly, if flight instructors taught a little bit more of, of that, not only the mental performance, but the leadership aspect, leading yourself, which I think would not only make better aviators, but just, as, as you might guess, better people in general. It's funny listening to you. I built my own airplane, and I remember I was the test pilot on the first flight, and for some some reasons that I had some things not set up the right way on my first flight. And although I seen my airspeed indicator come alive on my takeoff roll, once I got airborne, it went away. And I said, wait a minute, I don't have airspeed. And so here I am flying an airplane I've never flown before, first flight, and I don't have airspeed indicator, which is not the end of the world, but it's still enough to get your attention. And I remember very specifically saying, well, Ron, nobody's coming to help you've got to figure this out and you got to get on the ground and you can't just pull over like you would a car. So it's, it's, it's an interesting thing when you're a pilot, those, some of those things aren't at your option and you just have to make it work. So I love that you say that. What, what drew you, you know, obviously I think people get this already. You were in military aviation. What drew you to that career path? What, what was the the driving force? So The main driver was wanting to serve my country. When I was in high school, I was going to college full-time as a program they had in Minnesota. And I I thought, I really want to go in the military. It's very intriguing to me. I The idea of serving my country, being part of a team, um, just the organization and discipline of it all just fit me and my personality. And I thought, I want to do this. And I, I met a guy who was in the Navy in one of my college classes. And I said, hey, I'm thinking about the military and I'm thinking Navy. And he said, mm, I really think you should think about the Air Force. <laughs> and I said, well, why? And this is about probably 1994 at the time. And he said, well, you know, they treat their people better. They're cleaner and, and they're more advanced with how they're treating women at this point. And I thought, OK, well, that's interesting. So I had never known anyone in the military. So I went to the Air Force ROTC detachment at the University of Minnesota because there was no question I was going to get a degree. So I wasn't going to just go enlist. So I went to that detachment and just said, I want to serve my country. I'm ready to join this program. They told me about it. They said I could try it. If I didn't like it, I could quit. And they also asked me if I wanted to be a pilot because that's what they ask everyone. And I had never thought about it. I, I mean, I really didn't. I didn't know any pilots, let alone female pilots. And come to find out, they said I was ineligible. I had ACL reconstruction on my left knee and I couldn't do it. So that was the end of that. Well, I went to field training, which is like ROTC boot camp. It was at Lackland Air Force Base in the middle of summer, Texas, four weeks, you know, doing the drill and the obstacle courses and push ups and marching, all that. And they had a career day. And there was 200 cadets in the audience, a couple panel members, only one pilot. And he just so happened to point right at me. And he said, 
are you going to be a pilot? And I looked at him and I said, I can't. I said, I had knee surgery. And his reply was what started it all. He said, there's pretty much a waiver for everything. (laughs) (laughs) So I wish I'd learned that lesson then, but I didn't. But I did go back to the detachment and ask if we could find out about this waiver. Because truly, when I started to really process it, I was a roller coaster kid. I was a gymnast. I was a tree climber, just an all around adventure. And this seemed like, I thought, wow, this is actually a really great idea. And they looked into it and found out that I was eligible the entire time. I, it was, it was such a common surgery. And so I just did all the testing. And at that point I applied and I got a pilot slot and it really just, it went from there. Wow. Well, number one, I'm thinking, why in the world would an ACL surgery prevent you from being a pilot? That, that's the first thing that comes to mind. I, I know the military has some, sometimes some strange, you know, things. I think it's getting better. You know, yeah. it's some strange things though to, to, I don't know, roadblock you from being a pilot, but I'm glad you found that way around it. And, you know, as I always like to say, you know, it, it's always fascinating to me how one little thing like that what if you had never asked that question yep. and brought that to your attention? And and quite honestly, whatever his motive was behind that, thank goodness he did, right? Yeah, exactly. It's true. That's happened quite a few times in my life. Let's again go into my selfish side. So you were an instructor pilot in the T-38. Uh, I have quite a few friends that uh, flew the T-38. Uh, what, what would you say about the T-38? What's it like to fly the T-38? It's, it's awesome. I mean, I think one of the coolest things in my, well, I, my absolute favorite thing when people say, do you miss flying? Cause I actually don't fly anymore. I say I do. And what I miss the most is formation. Formation is my absolute favorite thing to do in the world. It's like this extremely challenging, aggressive, yet requiring finesse maneuver you know, to have aggression and finesse together, it's just awesome. And it's so challenging and so much fun. That's definitely my favorite thing. But I think, you know, flying the T-38, especially in formation is is amazing. And I think just simply the challenge of landing it it is one of the most difficult aircraft to land in the whole Air Force inventory, landing at speeds of 160 knots. It's really, really quite fast. And the wings are very small. So there's not much forgiveness. Oh my goodness. Yes. It, for, for the non-pilots. I mean, it looks like, it kind of looks like a little rocket with, with these stubby little wings, really short wings. And, you know, we'll, we'll get to, I'm glad you kind of planted that seed for formation flying. We'll talk more about that in, in a little bit, but I want to stick with, I've flown two aircraft that had a roll rate of about 400 degrees per second. And I'll tell you, you know, for anybody that hasn't experienced that, that's fast. Quite honestly, 400 degrees per second. If you're not ready for it, your head will smack against the, you know, the plexiglass canopy because you you can't hold your head, you know, from, from moving. And the T-38 is way above 400 degrees per second. What is the roll rate of the, the T-38? Oh, you had to go there, didn't you? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. I just know it's super I, I, fast. <laughs> yes, I... Here's here's what I know, and, and I had to do a little research. 700, 720 degrees per second. So that's that's two times around in one second. So, you know, half a second, it's going around one revolution. I've been told, and I don't know, you tell me, Tammy, I've been told, and I don't know if this is an urban legend, that they pretty much tell you don't do a full deflection roll in the T-38. Is that true? 
you can't do multiple. I mean, you can do one, you know, but I mean, you better be ready to reverse it right away. (laughs) Wow. It's actually a prohibited maneuver to do it multiple times. I don't remember the exact verbiage, but. Oh, and so that's, that's kind of, that's the, the stepping stone into, into what? Every, does everybody have to fly the T-38 in the Air Force or who, no. who, who um, are your students? Well, at the time, it's it's since changed now. Supposedly, what I understand is they'll go through the primary trainer, which is the T-6, and then they split off in their tracks depending, and they get their wings at that point, and then they split off into tracks, whether they're going to the heavies or they're going to fly fighters. When I was teaching and when I went through, what would happen is I went through the T-37, which was the the primary trainer when I went through, but it's now replaced by the T-6. It was a two-engine low-wing aerobatic jet. You know, you no G-suit, but it pulled G's, and you you had to wear the whole getup with the mask and the, you know, all that. And then at that point, you're based on your performance, your preference, and your instructor's goals, like based on your performance, like what they thought of you, you got track selected into different programs. So I was track selected into the T-38, which is the fighter at the time, the fighter bomber trainer. And it, I mean, it's still the fighter trainer. I'm not sure about the bomber side of it because bombers are a lot bigger. Sometimes they can go through the T-1 and move on, which is like a more of a corporate jet, but it's, you have to fly the T-38 and to go fly fighters. It's essentially a fighter trainer. And one thing I like to point out to people is most people, a lot of people have seen the movie Armageddon and in the movie, before they actually go up in space, they go in a little fighter jet. And that's NASA's T-38. It's exactly the same, except, except it has beefed up engines. So that's that's the same airframe that I flew, if you've seen Armageddon. Nice. Nice. I forgot about that. that that's a good visual of that plane. So anyway, so you're an instructor pilot. What is there anything that you would point to was maybe common mistake? that new pilots when they were flying with you what what was the common mistakes that you saw was there a trend or was it all over the place you know i i don't know about like flying wise necessarily there's a trend but i think that one thing that that is a trend and this this applies outside as well not just flying it's everywhere but is just a lack of confidence one of the things that we would always tell the students and i was told as a student as well you know be confident and I find it extremely difficult, you know, for some students to include me to be confident when I haven't proven to myself yet that I can do something that was very challenging. And it really wasn't until I was several several years into my career and flying the A-10 that I kind of learned the lesson in confidence and how to build it. I was in Korea flying the A-10 and I was studying in the vault, which is, it's just a locked up room that you can only go in if you have a the security clearance, but the weapons officer who's the chief instructor pilot in the squadron, he walked in and he asked a question and I immediately knew the answer, but I paused. And in my pause, one of the other students answered and he answered incorrectly. But I realized that if I hadn't known the answer myself, I would have completely thought his answer was correct. And I thought, well, wow this is what they're all doing. That's what everyone else is doing. They're just answering as if whatever comes to their mind and whatever they say is right. And I'm not saying they're just throwing random numbers or answers out there. They're, they're educated guesses and it makes sense. That still didn't solve my problem though, because even though I knew what they were doing, I didn't know how to overcome it because why, why was I not doing that? It wasn't until I realized the root cause, which is always important, find the root cause of whatever the problem is. The root cause for me 
was that if I didn't know the answer 100% could see it in the book, wherever it was written, I felt like I was lying. If I spit it out with confidence, it would, there was a mismatch in my brain and I had to make a very conscious decision to overcome that. And I did, I, I made an intentional decision. You know, you make it, make a decision back here and then you just don't weigh from it once you make that educated decision. So I made this choice that if at any point I, you know, somebody asked me a question and something popped into my brain, even if I wasn't hundred percent sure I was going to, to answer confidently. And it was incredible. In fact, what I discovered was that almost night, I would, I would, I'm guessing here, obviously 90% of the time, whatever that number was or whatever that answer was, it popped in my brain that oftentimes I went, well, that's probably not it was correct. Our brains are really very incredible and we just need to trust them a little more And that. Ultimately that built more confidence and more confidence. And, you know, the same thing in pilot training, I would, I would tell the students, you need to answer with confidence. Look at it from my seat. If as the instructor, your student looks at you and says, well, I think that it's 75. Does that give the instructor a lot of confidence? You're going to go out in that jet and take care of business. Not really. <laughs> So I taught them to answer with confidence. And we talked about the whole lying and thing and like that it's not lying. It's, you know, it's just a way to overcome your own doubts and build your own confidence. Well, this is, this is a great topic. This is fascinating to me, but, but let me pause. You know, one of the things that you're probably aware of, Amy, I mean, part of what we do at Forging Metal is, is really try to emphasize female leadership and, I know from teaching at the university and some of the stuff that I've read that women, and again, we're general, I'm generalizing here, but women typically are are more reluctant to take a job that they're not either a hundred percent qualified for or really close to a hundred percent. Whereas men will step into, yeah, I'll apply for that job, even though I really know I'm not, you know, quite qualified, but they'll, they'll step into that more often. And I always like to kind of, you know, counsel my, my students, my, my female students is, you know, step up, you know, even none of us are ever going to be, have that perfect situation and to step into that and, and, and maybe, you know, have confidence. Like you're saying, I think that could, I don't know, solve a lot of, of maybe the problems. Any, any thoughts on that? Absolutely. I, when I learned that same fact that you're talking about, I can specifically remember looking at a job and seeing the word requirements. And I was like, well, I don't have that. So I can't apply to me. A requirement is a, it's a black and white. It's a requirement. And I find it interesting that people will be like, eh, I can figure that out or, or that's good enough. I'm going to try. I think it's awesome, but I didn't know that I am very, very black and white. I'm very, and sometimes I have to get outside my comfort zone in, in the sense of like pushing the rules, like the whole waiver thing. There are multiple times in my career that I didn't realize that I could even ask for a waiver. For example, when I had cervical spine reconstruction in 2006, I had the regulation stated I needed to be grounded for six months. Well, in the A-10 landing currency is six months, which if I lose my landing currency as an inexperienced pilot, which I was at the time, I had to go back to full training again. A whole shebang of going through A-10 training as if I'd never flown it before. And so, you know, obviously I, I, they had me fly right before the day before my surgery, just literally take off land, update my landing currency. That's it. But then this, the DNF period six months from the surgery, which was after that. So there was a problem. 
So that was at a point where I actually went and I sought out flying unmanned platforms in the, in the Air National Guard. And I transitioned to, air, to that platform. And while I was in training, I was waiting to fly this unmanned platform, but I still needed to get cleared to fly. So I was working with the flight docs. I'm like, can you just clear me like as if I'm a heavy pilot? I don't need this six month period for my neck. And they're like, he goes, well, hey, why don't we just send you to Wright Pat, have him check you out and get you a waiver for the six months? I'm like, that would have been really good to know before I left the A-10 community because he was thinking, well, I'll get you back in the A-10. We can, I'm like, so again, you know, like these black and white rules, I didn't understand you could stretch things. So I would say advice to everyone, ask that question. Don't let it take 15 years or your career to go, hey, is there a waiver for this? Can we get an exception to this? Because not all policies are the end all be all. And that's how I, that's how I operated at the time. I like that. Even though, you know, maybe that that's not a term that everybody that's not in the military would say, well, yeah, I've never thought about a waiver, but Hey, you, you could apply this to life, right? Yes. Maybe that's a, that's the, that's the saying that you need to take away. Is there a waiver that I can, that I can have? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I think it goes to the heart of this idea of, you know, when I'm doing coaching with people and they say, well, I can't do that. And and I go, how do you know? Have you tried? And it's, it's really easy. You know, you see the roadblock and you go, okay, well, I can't get around that. Well, have you tried? And, and I think maybe that's the the takeaway here is maybe you can't get around it, but, but give it an effort before you just kind of put your hands in the air and say, I can't do that. And I, I know, I don't, again, I always feel like I'm being judgmental here. I'm not trying to be judgmental. And the fact I've done this too, it's really easy to take that path of saying, I can't do it. So yeah. I think that's a great, great life lesson. Let's continue with, with confidence. You know, I teach everything from undergraduate, you know, engineers that are 20 years old to, to graduate students. And, and then of course my coaching is, is all across the board, but, but especially with my undergraduate students, they go, well, Ron, I don't have any experience. So how can I have confidence? What would be your answer to whether, and I don't like to use age so much, but you're just wherever you're at in life and you go, you know what? I, I don't feel like I have enough conf or en enough experience to be confident. What's your answer to that? Well, I think it depends on where they are that always, you know, there's that, it depends answer. Like, are they not confident because they've never done it or they don't have the experience yet? But regardless, I think, how do you, how do you get anywhere if you don't try. And so my advice to that is, is take on the idea of a visualization, truly, you know, the whole manifestation thing. And it doesn't have to, like some people hear that word and they're like, oh, that's all, you know, meditation, manifestation. It's just the idea of like putting yourself in that place and seeing yourself there and, and doing it regularly. And you can build confidence that way. I mean, there's the whole fake it till you make it, fake it till you become it. You know, I don't like the word fake it, you know, but the truth is you can be confident in your own, like your history and how have you, how have you performed before you can, what, one thing I like to say is use other people's confidence in you to drive your own energy and own confidence. For example, when I was seven months pregnant, five months pregnant with my second baby, I was asked to go to weapons school which is essentially the top gun program for the air force. And I did the math and they were asking me to go when my babies would be 18 months and three months old. And my immediate, I almost immediately said F no. 
And I like, I almost never swear. So that was me just, I, I basically just went right into the problem and said, nope, this is, this is an unsolvable problem. And I didn't even try, but I didn't answer that way because I didn't want to respond emotionally. So I waited and I talked I, to my husband and he told me, he, I told him about this kind of like laughing, oh, guess what they want me to do. And he said, you have to go. You have to go. You cannot turn this down. And my lesson in this is that I didn't believe in myself at all. And so often society is like, well, you got to do everything on your own. And if you don't believe in yourself, you shouldn't be doing it. Well, the truth is we all have those moments. But if you have a network of people you can trust who say, hey, give it a shot. I believe in you. Take that. And I did apply and I did go. And it was really hard, but he believed in me. And I said, okay, if you believe in me, I'm going to go, I'm going to do this. So, so I would say use multiple tools. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, on a previous podcast, I had a discussion where I said, you know, the, the phrase I believe in you is, is underused and incredibly powerful when it's coming from the right person. So kudos to your husband for saying that. And, and I would say, I agree. Sometimes we need that nudge. It would be nice if life worked out that we always had supreme confidence and we never needed that nudge, but that's not the way it works. And so I think surrounding yourself with, with people that will give you that nudge when you need it is, is great. So good stuff there. And so let's let's kind of move. You know, the, the, I like that you said, I don't like fake it till you make it. I don't necessarily, I like fake it till you become it a little bit better, but I still like the word fake. I know. So I, I was smiling when you said that because I say, you know, be authentic, but I do believe, and this is just my thoughts maybe to add to yours. You know, when students ask me this, I say, well, we can do some of it. We can do some manifestation. We can do some visualization. We can do some coaching and that will help get you some confidence. But at the end of the day, this is my belief. You are not going to get the full confidence you need until you go out there and, as I say, engage in battle. And, and we get skinned knees and we fall down and we fail, but that's how you get it. But I'll tell you, for somebody that, that teaches leadership, I'm learning that even if you're an idiot, <laughs> confident <laughs> idiots, people follow confident idiots. Confidence has a lot of power with people and it can be used for good or bad. And I'm not certainly telling people to use it for evil, but my point is, is confidence is incredibly powerful when we're talking about leadership. It is. And, you know, it reminds me of, you know, Amy Cuddy talks about like having your posture, how your posture can change how you feel. And whether the research on that is valid or not, I tell you, for me, it personally works. I have learned that, you know, if I'm, if I'm hunched over and I'm not only does it, it affects me and how I feel, but people looking at me, they're not going to believe in me as much as if I'm sitting up proudly. And it reminds me of when I first, my first assignment in the Air Force after graduating pilot training was as a first assignment instructor pilot in the T-37, which is the Air Forces. Again, it was the primary trainer at the time, which means I was now just months from graduating pilot training myself. And now I am teaching brand new pilots who don't have a clue what they're doing, to be quite honest. It's just legit. That's that's true. And it's a little, it's scary, but the Air Force trusted me to do this. The Air Force said, we believe in you. And they gave me the training. And when I first walked into that squadron as a 
first lieutenant instructor pilot, my first student was outranked me. He was a captain. But I remember thinking, I have to walk down these halls with my head up and my, you know, broad shoulders. And it's funny how it changes you a little bit. You're like, okay, I got this. Even though I had never taught a real student before, I I used that experience and that trust of everyone else. You know, again, kind of come back to multiple tools to, to actually have confidence where I'm not just faking it, but I got this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And gosh, this just, it was almost like a light bulb went off my head. Act confident, you know, maybe that'd be my advice to people that say, I don't, I don't really feel confident. Well, act it. And we know from physiology that those body mannerisms can actually get your brain thinking in more confident ways. So if that's what you want to call fake it till you make it, have at it. Tammy and I don't really like that, but, but I, but I see that it's, it's a similar idea, right? It's just act confident. People don't know that you're freaking out on the inside. <laughs> you know, this right. idea of imposter syndrome, that, that's, that's what I'm hearing, right? It's, yeah. it's like, who am I to be doing this? But they don't know that. Right. And I, you know, I, I like the science out there that talks about how physiologically being nervous and excited is the same response. So when I, and I teach my children this, when they're athletics tests, whatever, I actually tell them, even if you don't feel it, tell yourself, I'm excited. I'll even let them say I'm nervous, but I'm excited because that shift in the brain changes how you approach. I mean, you know, this, you've done this before, but somebody told me it was almost like it doesn't shifting it to saying I'm excited is not going to accelerate you, but what it's going to do is remove, remove that weight vest that you're, you're carrying around. Like if someone was to run a race with a 12 pound weight vest, that's not going to help them. But if they take it off, like I'm excited, that's like taking that vest off and giving you your full potential instead of holding you back with the nervousness. Because when you say I'm nervous, it tells your brain that you're not prepared, you're not ready and starts leaving all this negative thoughts going on inside of your head. And you don't need those. You need all your thought energy to be positive and towards your objective. Well said, well said. What, you know, it's funny. I had this on my list of of something to talk about. So let's go right into it. You know, usually in performance psychology, we're going to call this arousal regulation. And so, you know, being nervous or being anxious or being fearful um, and excitement, those are all forms of arousal. And you had a nice little video on your, your website talking about how to get in the right spot. You know, sometimes you'll hear people call it the sweet spot or whatever. And so share with us a little bit about how do we how do we know what that, that sweet spot looks like? And is it different for different people? What are your thoughts on that, Tammy? I absolutely think it's different for different people because I think what happened for me is that when when I was in weapons school, a couple of the guys were like, hey, you know, I was getting ready for a flight. And these are very intense, very important flights that I mean it's a big deal and a lot of preparation goes into it. And they said to me, hey, you're pinging. Like, and some people don't know what that means, like pinging off the walls, like I'm freaking out. And I thought, I am? I really had, I had no idea. And so I, I made a conscious effort over the next probably couple of weeks to just be more calm and more, you know, like, I'm good. I got this. Not, not showing the world that I was nervous is what I was interpreting from them. And I remember them saying a couple of weeks later, like, hey, you're, you're still pinging. And I just kind of paused and I thought, well, Clearly it works for me (laughs) because it does. And that's when I realized that 
everyone has that different state of arousal, like you're saying. And mine, I need to be a little bit more intense. I remember the same thing when I was doing gymnastics. I remember being up on the beam, doing the high beam. I had to do like seven routines and I had to do this front walkover. You put your hands down and then your one foot comes down and your other foot. It's a blind move. So I, I'd never fallen off before. I'd fallen off, but I never missed my first foot. And I remember standing at the end of the beam thinking, why do I keep getting so nervous? This is ridiculous. I've never missed. And I just casually went and can you guess what happened? Yes, I missed. Never missed before because I wasn't in that right arousal state. I wasn't, I didn't, wasn't tuned enough into what I needed to do. And I mean, you can see where this knee problem is going, rip my ACL, right? So that's where things change for me. But it was all because I, I didn't understand that it needed to be in the state which also leads me to another story that I want to share. I remember when I was going through training to be an instructor pilot yet again, and we were taking a test and there was a whole group of us in the room and I'm kind of going over the material and it's, it's an academic test. So here I am studying and I'm, I'm pinging. Remember, I'm kind of bouncing off the walls. And another guy in my class who was very much a calm presence. That's how he operated. He came up to me and he looks at me and he goes, man, I would hate to be one of your students. And I was totally taken aback. I thought, what? I mean, I, I love students. Like I love teaching them. I love figuring out what their, pro what their problem is and solving it, not just kind of teaching them a blanket way. And I realized that he was expecting that this high standard I was pinging and holding myself to was the standard I would hold my students to. Now, I believe that I believe in high standards, but standards need to be reasonable per, per, for the level you're at. And for me to hold a brand new student to the standard I was holding myself would have been ridiculous. But that's what he was expecting that I was going to do. And I did not do that. But it was just, it's just interesting. Yeah, we were talking about this before we got on the air is. I see a lot of leaders, especially new leaders, just try to do that, right? That right. everybody's got to be a carbon copy of Ron, right? Every every way I do things is is got to be the best way, and so all the people that that I lead have to do it my way. And and I think you know, one of the the first lessons is understand everybody comes at this a little different. And you may have students that are a little more calm. You might have some that are more pinging like you, or in between. And I think allowing for that. And meeting them where they are right. is, is important. And so that's that's good stuff. Let's just jump right into this idea. Earlier, I said, let's talk about formation flying. So I, as everybody knows, I'm a pilot and I fly I fly a Vans RV7. It's a little two-seat, pretty sporty, home-built aircraft. I built it. And I'm just now starting to get into formation flying. I'm learning how to fly in formation. And so I had my first flight. It's funny that the timing of this podcast, my first flight, I had ground school and then the first flight was Tuesday morning. So two days ago. Okay. And I can tell I was mostly a passenger in this flight. It was, it was really kind of a demo to say, okay, this is what it looks like when you do it right. And I had, you know, my instructor pilot is a former F-15 fighter pilot. I was in good hands. And I think for the first 15 minutes, I was terrified. <laughs> yes. Until I started breathing again, I go, wow, airplanes are not supposed to be that close. Right. Uh, and then it was funny because on the way back to returning to base, as they would say in the military, I got to fly a little bit. So I was flying in, in some what we call root formation, which is a little bit more loose. 
Mm-hmm. I, I had the controls. And at some point along the way, he says to me, he goes, he goes, loosen your grip on the stick. And, and I go, my, I'm good with the stick. I was taught as a young pilot, don't, you know, over squeeze the stick. But he, and then he goes, wiggle your toes. And I, I just laughed because my hands were doing just fine. Uh, but I think I was trying to hang on to that aircraft like a cat with my feet. <laughs> I was so tense. And when he said that, I go, wow, I didn't even realize how tense I was basically from the waist down. And so how does that get in the way? I mean, I know you know a lot about this. How does that get in the way, not only when we're flying, but but also in life uh, of maybe being too tense? And I think you like to use the word over control when we're trying to over control things in life. Right. So, yes, I just posted about this on LinkedIn. Did you see that? I did. <laughs> yes. I mean, you talked about wiggle your toes. I want you to sing. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I just think that it, it applies so much in life. I mean, what was, what was the actual question you wanted me to answer? So I don't go off. There was a couple of them there. Number one, being tense like this. So, you know, most of us are not going to be flying close formation, but what about when, you know, how does being tense get in the way of performance? And so maybe I'm doing a, I'm doing a presentation at work and I'm really tense. How's that going to, how's that going to hinder me? That'd be my first question. Yeah. I, I think that the whole over control thing, just it leads to a lot of robotic type maneuvers and that's it's never going to cr- come across really authentic and that's part of the problem i think about i mean you think about speeches and there's that fine line between there's always the argument of am i going to memorize it or am i going to just be candid people are like well i just want to be candid cuz i want to be natural absolutely i understand depends on where you're going to speak. I mean, if you're just speaking to your own organization and it's like a staff meeting, then yes, you're not going to memorize it. But if you're doing it as a profession, you need to know it so well that when you perform it, you don't think about it. You're natural in your presence because you know it so well. I think, uh, you know, the preparation in advance will really help that over-controlling, you know, understanding where you need to be so that you can just kind of chill you know, somebody else replied in there, they were talking about, they were talking about motorcycles, but it applies to a bike as well. That, you know, if you're going over something really bumpy and you squeeze every muscle in your body and those ha- handlebars, everything's just going to get translated through you. But if you kind of let them loosely grip in your hands, you can kind of maneuver with it a little bit better rather than getting into what I call the PIO, the pilot induced oscillations, which is essentially you fighting it and it going the other way. So then you, a bigger correction the other way and you end up like, whoa, and you end up, you know, in this crazy in the airplane, it would be up and down typically, but. Yeah. And, and if, I don't know, she'd be pretty, can we think of times in our lives when we do this? Again, we don't have to be flying an airplane to think of times in our life when we, I'm going to put it in air quotes, over controlled. Right. And, yes. and a lot of times that's driven by what that's driven by, by emotions. And we go, Whoa, you know, we overreact one way and then we try to overreact to correct. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we're, we're in a mess and so I think this is this is just great. These are great tactics for life to to relax to a certain degree, right? Some arousal is good. We we right. want to be on alert. We want to be at our best, but we also don't want to be too tense. You know, you used an example, and and I have an example that that I'll share from when I played baseball. I played college baseball for a while, and I remember my coach. And we were you know at practice in. He said, all right, I want everybody to lay down on the grass. So we lay down on our, on our stomachs and he said, put your hand out, your right hand out in front of you. 
And so if you can kind of picture this, we're all laying in the grass. We have our hand out in front of us. And he said, now I want you to take your pointing finger and I want you to tap the ground as fast as you can, as, as firmly as you can. And we all did that. And we all go, okay, what is the point of this? This is ridiculous. And, and then he said, okay, now how'd that feel? And then we talked about it. And then he says, all right, now I want you to do the same thing, but I want you to loosen your, your, you know, the muscles in your hand, loosen them up and try to tap as fast as you can, as loosely as you can. And it was just amazing how much quicker you can be when you're not being tense. And, and so you have a similar, you know, kind of story that you used to teach pilots. And, and what was that? For in close formation, yeah. So, so basically, yeah, like the pencil stick, yeah, yeah. So, what I would tell students is a lot of times they didn't understand what I was saying when I, you know, because they just still grip that stick a lot. And there's two things I would do one, I would actually don't look at the other jet right now, I'm gonna fly and I want you to look at the stick. And they, they would see the stick was barely moving and the throttles were barely moving. So it only takes a little bit of contact, a little bit of input. But, but then I would take them back to the flight room and say, okay, I want you to pick up a pencil. I want you to wrap your hands around it as tight as you can. And I want, go write your name. Tell, tell me if you write your name right now, how beautiful is it going to be? And they're like, it's going to be terrible. I'm like, exactly. So that's why you need to loosen your grip. You need to loosen information. You need to loosen it in life. I mean, you talk about parenting or job searching or, you know, your people and, you know, getting a sale. I mean, whether, you know, you're trying so hard to control this thing that it, it slips your grip really because, it's just not controlled anymore. My mind, I, I'm going to show my age right here. My mind's going back to one of my favorite songs by the band 38 Special. Holding on loosely. So there's your, there's your, I don't know, your mantra for today is hold on loosely. I'm an, I'm an old, I say I'm a recovering control freak. <laughs> I mean, life. And, and I think, you know, anybody out there that, that might be a type A personality, as they say, or you like to label yourself as a perfectionist, you might also be a control freak. And one of the best things that's ever that I ever did was learn to let go of those things I can't control. So I, I, I like that. This is the message that's kind of coming out of this. Um, a, can I bring something up really quick? Yeah, okay. yeah. So there's a method that's I've, I've learned in the mental performance coaching piece where you, if there's something that's coming up, whether it's a, you know, a business meeting, a game, an event, I don't know, whatever, whatever it is, you're an athlete, you have two columns and you list the struggles, things that are challenging to you. And on one side, you list the things that are struggles that you can control, that you actually can do something about. And then on the other side, you relist the things you can't do anything, you know, a coach yelling or whatever it is you actually cannot control that's bothering you. And then Look at it, write it down, look at it, and then you rip it in half and the side of the stuff you can't control, you throw in the trash. There's just something mm -hmm. incredible about the physical act of getting rid of it, writing it down and getting rid of it that can help people get through stuff like that. I'm going to use that. I, I not heard that, but I'll tell you what, from my experience that you create that list and, and which one, which list do you think is going to be smaller? It's going to be that side that you actually can control. I think a lot of people really believe that they control a lot more than they do. Yeah. The list that you can truly control is not really that big. And yeah. once you you look at that list, it simplifies things, right? You lose a lot of that stress and then that burden of trying to control things you can't. So, good. Okay. you know, one of the things that that also came out of me learning to fly in formation or as I start to learn this 
it was emphasized over and over and over again on this first flight and even in the ground school to anticipate, right? There's so many things when you're flying in close formation that you just got, you got to be ahead of what's happening with the airplane Yeah. and, you know, in, in military and, and, and even civilian aviation, we call it situational awareness. And mm-hmm. I'm really big on this idea of not only should pilots be well-versed in situational awareness, but even in life, you know, pay attention be observant, ask questions, stay ahead of, you know, try to anticipate what's going to come next. What are your thoughts on situational awareness? It's significant. Yeah. I mean, I think that situational awareness can vastly be increased when we stop being so selfish. I think a lot of times poor situational awareness is simply coming from just looking out for ourselves And when we expand our aperture and look beyond ourselves to what's going on around us and who are we impacting, who's impacting us, how can we kind of get in harmony, if you will. I mean, think about formation. I'm thinking about where is he going to turn or where's she going to turn? And can I, you know, can I, you don't want to, you don't lead it. You You don't like move before, but if you're ready, then your hand's ready to pull the throttle back if they turn into you or whatever it might be, you're kind of on top of it. I think it's really important to deal with problems by preparing in advance. Like you're, you're addressing that a little bit and I'm going taking it a little bit further to the whole what ifs, the negatives, you know, like planning ahead. Because I think a lot, I, I think about pilot training and how many what ifs they taught us. Like, well, what if you have the, this emergency or that emergency? And I remember thinking as a naive young lieutenant, what on earth are we doing right now? I cannot even fly this plane. And you want me to deal with some obscure emergency that probably will never happen. But the truth is, is that A, it could happen and I'd be ready. But B, I'm, I'm filling up my tool bucket to prepare in advance for these actual emergencies while at the same time, I'm mentally preparing with how I'm going to deal with it because I'm thinking ahead if this bad thing happens, what's my mental state going to be? We're going to go to aviate, navigate, communicate, which just simply is breaking down things to like, oh, let's fly the plane first. Like, and you can you can apply that to life as well. I'm just going to fly the plane and then navigate. Where am I going? And then lastly, I'm going to communicate because a lot of people do the communicate first. When you really got to aviate, you got to take care of yourself first, and then where are you going to go, and then then communicate about it. But there you go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I had a thought and I think it just escaped me. Maybe it'll come back to me. You know, oh, I was, uh, one of the things I was going to say that when we go back to situational awareness and you said, you know, stop being so selfish and kind of look around you. And I was laughing inside because how many people have experienced that person that is, I don't know, maybe texting on their phone and they're, you know, walking down the sidewalk and they stop right in the middle of the sidewalk and they got their head buried in their phone. And it's like you run into them and it's like, do you even realize there's people around you? This yeah. would be zero situational yeah. awareness. Exactly. I, yeah, situational awareness is I usually, you know, and taking back to the selfish piece, whenever I struggle with something, I always start internally and think, am I being selfish somehow? Because usually I can find if I'm angry or frustrated, it's usually a high standard I'm holding or something that's unrealistic. It's my expectation management is really terrible. And I, I pause and I go, what is the intent of the other person or whatever's happening and, and kind of marry that all up. And it, it's so much more peaceful to handle the problem and move forward than if you just keep kind of butting heads and being like, no, I'm, I'm right. I'm, you know, I'm angry. I just let it go, you know, and work through it. Yeah. And I remembered what I was going to say, you know, 
one of the things that I coach on is, is performing well under pressure. And, you know, I, I, I say exactly what you're saying and that think about things that could go wrong. And I have some of my friends that say, well, that's just being negative, Ron. And, and I said, we can't prepare for everything that's going to go wrong. I mean, there's going to be things that we go, all right, didn't even think of that. But the more things that we can be ready for, mm-hmm. the best thing you can do when something unexpected happens. Well, I would say it's not going to be unexpected. You go, oh, I thought about that ahead of time. Yeah. That is when you're going to you're going to nail it under pressure more more times than not. And then those times when it happens and it's off script, mm-hmm. hopefully you have some kind of a mental model to, to lean on to you know, kind of ad lib, but that's, that's part of the game. That's part of life. You can't prepare for everything. And I know certainly in the military, you guys do a lot of training around that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yep. I mean, people, it's funny because they, they think it's a waste of time. Well, I don't want to, cause it's, I, I'm just, they live in hope land. They're just hoping that that thing that they know could happen won't happen. And then when it does, they have no idea what to do. It's not a waste of time to just, I mean, I'm not saying you can't prepare for everything, just like you said, but pick one or two things. And then eventually you're going to build up that toolbox. So. I like it. All right. Let's, let's start to kind of wind this down a little bit, even though I could talk about this for a while. How can people work with you, Tammy, anything exciting on your radar that maybe you're working on? How can people get a hold of you and hire you? Yeah, probably the, the best way to get a hold of me is if they're on LinkedIn, just find me on LinkedIn, Tammy Barlett, or email would be the best. It's Tammy at athenasvoiceusa.com. So Athena is in the goddess of wisdom and war, voice as in speaking, and then usa.com. They can find me there. And yeah, I'm just right now, I'm just working, have a couple speeches coming up that I'm working on and also just working through the mental performance for aviation. And I continue to do more studying on that because I just think there needs to be more, more in that area. I like that you say that because one of the things I think people don't make the connection is a lot of times when I, when I talk about performance coaching, they say, well, it's just for elite, you know, the elite athletes or elite, whatever. You know, those are the only people that really need to perform well under pressure. And I say, no, 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 no. And so I think you would probably echo that, right? This is, this is for everybody. And and, it absolutely um, is for everybody. And I honestly think that sometimes it's what is holding people back is this piece of it. So they could perform much better than they are. And they're, they're not going to giving themselves credit because I think a lot of things that came naturally to me can be taught. And that's what happened when I was building my perseverance speech. I thought, well, I can't, I can tell these perseverance stories, but I don't know how I did it. And I couldn't build the speech until I actually dissected. What did I actually do different that made me successful? Unlike other people. And it took quite some time. And I actually had to reverse research it. Basically I had, I went through a mental performance coaching program and went, Oh, that's what I was doing. And I didn't even know it. So I could teach it to others because, you know, it doesn't do me any good if I just say, you know, just do it. You know, like Nike, just do it. It's not helpful to people. So I learned some tools of how did I do it? I love that. And what I, the word I use is operationalize it, right? A lot of people have some wisdom and just like you said, I don't know how I did that. Well, start thinking about how, if I, if you had to do a five-step process to do that, what would it look yeah. like? And that, that's what I call operationalizing it. And then you can, you can teach others. So why? I mean, the point is, can you figure this out on your own? Yeah. Not to, uh, you know, certainly discount Tammy, but uh, if Tammy and I can do it, you guys can do it. And it, 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 we're not superheroes here. And so 
But here's the thing. It's nice when you can leverage what, what other people have done, the legwork they've done to explain that to you. You can, you know, if you want to use the word hack, I don't like the word hack, but <laughs> you want to call if you want to call that a hack, so be it. Learn from others. I think that's that's great advice. All right, let's go to the last question. Um, Tammy, what's your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? Well, I find that question interesting. And I find it interesting because I think that what my actual greatest failure is, is different than the time I felt like the biggest failure. Because <laughs> the time I felt like the biggest failure was definitely not the biggest failure moment in my life. So I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this. Let me start by saying when I was 18, I remember thinking, okay, I'm an adult now, I'm choosing my path. And then going, well, how do I know what my path is? This is so difficult. And my thought was, well, if I choose a path and it gets hard, then that's not the right path. And wow, was that terrible self-advice. <laughs> because I've learned over a, you know decades of experience and gaining wisdom that if I do solid goal setting, like I really take time to decide whether a goal is worth it or not and why I want it and what my personal core values are. And if it all lines up, once I set down the path, if it gets challenging, and I have failures, that is a really good sign that I am on the right path. That is if you want to grow as a person in, in life, I'm on the right path. So going to my, my biggest failure in life, I think truly is not taking opportunities that came about because I had imposter syndrome, because I didn't think I was qualified. I didn't raise my hand. I thought, well, if I'm good enough, they'll ask me. Oh, that's such a dumb, so dumb. <laughs> But it is what it is, right? So you learn from it. Now, what was my actual, like, what did, what did I feel? When did I feel like the biggest failure? Oh, it was an ugly moment. It was truly an ugly moment. I was on what should have been, and you can see where this is going, should have been the last check ride in my entire Air Force career. And it was a two-ship low level in the T-38, which we don't do a ton of, but that's fine. It's a mission we accomplished. They can give me a check ride enough if they want. That's no problem. I had an international student on my wing who was on the, like, they call it CAP, Commander's Awareness Program. So he was struggling. I thought, oh, wow. Okay, well, talk about giving me the challenge at the end of the career. And I made it through the entire flight. I was coming up over the field for landing. And I went, I like saluted the student off as I went into the break to land and like, oh, it's over. I went into the final turn and I got, I supposedly, I didn't see it. It was the instructor that saw it and it's, there's no warning bell. So supposedly I oversped my flaps by six knots. I think it was about six. Like it's supposed to be 220 and I was at 226 because the flaps were in transition. And so at the certain point they weren't quite, whatever it, Whatever the bottom line is, is I failed my check ride. It was supposed to be my last check ride in the Air Force as a lieutenant colonel. I had never failed a check ride in my entire life. And I could not believe it. And the way that it was handled was really quite appalling. But I I just I took every step and I just went along with it. And I'll say that night was rough because I was extremely embarrassed. And I would tell people what I did and other instructors as I was trying to like deal with this. And they're like, oh, that's all you did. I've done this. 
and you'd hear all these stories. I'm like, you just overspend your, I did that once in a check ride. The guy didn't say anything. He just said, you know, just, I'm like, okay, well that's fine. It was still a rule and I broke it. So it is what it is. It was horrible though. That was absolutely where I felt like the biggest failure in my whole life, but I accomplished the check ride again and I passed. So <laughs> there you go. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.